Hey, y'all. Here we are with protein episode 10, as much protein as an egg. This is chapter 17 and 18. We are really getting into it. We're about to get into the real 9-11 stuff with Tony Vitelli, Bainbridge McGee, and our friend Billy Pilgrim. So let's check it, bop it, hit it. Here we go. Music. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg. Back in effect. SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. You're listening to Seth Harwood. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. That's right. Sorry to leave you on a major cliffhanger last time where we're getting down there to La Quinta to see what Bainbridge McGee is writing. Bainbridge McGee. Say that 17 times fast. One smart fellow. He felt smart. Two smart fellows, they felt smart. Three smart fellows, they felt smart. Try that a few times and enjoy yourself while you're at it. In any case, summer marches on. We've got cold weather here today. Things are insane. Uh, I've decided that there are three pandemics, uh, political, viral, uh, racial, so I'm thinking about writing a sequel to As Much Protein in As an Egg and calling it The Three Pandemics of 2020. Question for you. What would you use as a nickname vernacular version of 2020? Uh, in a freestyle, Black Thought uh, refers to 2020, the old TV show, as Dub Dub. Something about the Dub Dub interview. Um, so I don't feel good writing like just 2020, uh, but I like some sort of nickname for that. I wonder if you can help me come up with one dub dub. Also, there's a Jordan 20 sneaker that some people call something. I forget what they call it, but anyway, 20 has some nicknames and I'd love to have you help me hear what they are in any case. Thanks to Carlos again for recording. Carlos Mendoza, my boy. And here we are with chapters 17 and 18. Enjoy. Chapter 17. Here's what happened next in Brooklyn. Tony Vitelli fell off the roof. Billy Pilgrim watched Tony Vitelli fall off the roof. For some unknown reason, Tony Vitelli fell right off the roof of his building in Park Slope. It wasn't the marijuana. No, it wasn't the weed that made this happen or the heat of the hot black tarmac. Was it the tremor that he felt go through his hands? Did his building in Brooklyn shake from the impact of the gigantic mass of the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapsing to the ground miles away and lower Manhattan and pop him off into open space as it shook? We'll never know. 
All we can know for sure is that Tony Vitelli fell off the roof because Bainbridge McGee made it happen. In the 4.2 seconds that it took for Vitelli to fall the five stories off the roof of his building to the sidewalk below, the sidewalk that collided with his head and broke it open, thereby killing him, the thoughts that passed through his head were these. First, he asked the world why he was falling. Why am I now falling? he asked. He decided it was the tremor that shook him off. Next, he thought he was flying. He thought, so this is what it's like. All his life, he'd wondered what it'd be like to fly or fall through the air all the way back to when he was a toddler and he could look down the gap in the staircase of his townhouse in Boston. He feared that someday he'd fall through that gap, but he never did. When he was nine years old, his parents split up, sold the house, and moved into two different houses. Tony Vitelli was still alive, having not fallen down the gap. That he hadn't fallen to his death in that house was a pretty great turn of events in his childhood. The colossal life-altering event that his parents split up was not. Now he was falling through open, empty air. At some point in his short life, he should have tried skydiving. This would have helped him understand what it was like to fall through the air. This might have helped him cure this fear of falling or feel easier around edges of roofs. It may have helped with this, but it wouldn't have helped him now because he was already off the edge. All he had left to fear was the sidewalk breaking open his head. This was a really scary thing. Something definitely to be afraid of. But he couldn't do anything about that fear or that soon-to-arrive event. Gravity was seen to that. I'll tell you what really pitched Vitelli off the roof. It was his fear of falling. The same thing that caused his knees to buckle, this same weakness, affected other muscles in his body, his arms mostly, and took away their strength. Then he fell off the roof. There, now you know. The truth is out. So maybe skydiving would have helped to save his life after all. But that didn't matter anymore. Tony Vitelli was about to die. This would be the second novel that Tony Vitelli died in. The first was a book called Jack Wakes Up that I wrote. This use of the title of that book is intended to indicate an association with and a sponsorship of Jack Wakes Up, which is a fine, fine book. One certainly worthy of five-star reviews on Amazon. Listen, even Bainbridge McGee wasn't sure if he caused Tony Vitelli to fall from the roof or if it was Vitelli's own fear of heights and untimely loss of strength in certain muscles. What McGee feared most was that Vitelli really fell from the roof because he, McGee himself, was copping out as an author. Copping out meant, in rough terminology, that McGee was, quote, acting like a pussy. A pussy was a small, cute, cuddly kitten. McGee was worried because Tony Vitelli was the first falling person in his novel. He had originally meant for the falling people in his novel to be those poor souls who fell or jumped out of the hundred-and-something-story-high windows of the World Trade Center towers. For a time that morning on television, before they decided the images were too, quote, troubling, the networks had shown actual falling people in their live footage, bodies falling against the backdrop of the buildings. Reporters had talked about having to move away from the tower to leave the range of debris falling and, yes, people. McGee remembered this from watching television that morning. It was a Tuesday. He had been living in Ilium then, 
not a La Quinta. Then there was the picture in the New York Times that everyone remembered. McGee thought he remembered it. Because it was important to his book, McGee googled the picture. That's what people did with important things now that they didn't remember. Luckily for McGee, he was already sitting at his computer. Google was now a verb. It meant the same thing as typing. There was a particular picture in the New York Times on September 12, 2001, of a man caught falling in a perfect vertical line. It was called Falling Man. McGee remembered this much, and now Google revealed the picture to him on his screen. The man was falling headfirst to his death from the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The man's identity was never confirmed, but he was suspected to have worked at and fallen from Windows on the World, a restaurant on the top floors of the North Tower. This restaurant had occupied the 106th and 107th floors of the tower, McGee read on Wikipedia. This is absolutely screamingly high up in the sky. In the picture, which has quite a remarkable composition, one the photographer happened onto randomly as the man tumbled through the air, the man's verticality is contrasted against the stark vertical lines of the World Trade Center towers themselves, their blacks, whites, and grays. This picture graced page 7 of the New York Times on September 12th, McGee read. Then, to McGee's thinking, it disappeared. He thought it maybe was pushed away, out of the public eye, for being, quote, too troubling. The picture showed death is what it really did. About the picture, McGee knew two things. One, once you saw it, it was very hard to forget. Two, to some extent, more or less, this picture showed something. A reality, call it. Or a truth that is perhaps too horrible for us to consume in the way the New York Times and much of our mass media is consumed. There. That was it. A mouthful for McGee to be thinking, sure, but he was. And it was like the tiny kernel of a man at the tip-top of a peanut. This idea was embedded like that in McGee's brain, which was a lot like a peanut, only bigger. There was something honest and frank about the picture and its revelation of death, what it showed about that day that people couldn't quite handle. This thing, honest and frank, possibly a truth, hard to look at, was what McGee wanted to convey in his new masterpiece. He wanted to touch this with his writing, shine a light on it. He wanted to do this in some way similar to how Vonnegut had shown a truth about the firebombing of Dresden in 1945. Death. So it goes. And now he was afraid he was copping out. He also knew there wasn't complete shame in this. Here's why. Even the great literary writer Don DeLillo had tried to write about the falling people and copped out. McGee had read a review of DeLillo's novel Falling Man and found himself highly disappointed that the titular faller was merely a New York City performance artist. For a moment, McGee chided himself for not reading the book itself, something he felt he owed it to DeLillo. But he wasn't about to make a run out to the store. He actually could have bought the whole book right on his Kindle Paperwhite and read it without leaving the house, but he didn't. Not yet, anyway. We'll have to see if his guilt gets up high enough for him to do that. Keep in mind, McGee and all the writers in this book possess the superpower of very fast reading. He could literally read all of Falling Man in 20 minutes. You'd be surprised, maybe even impressed. McGee didn't really need to feel all that bad. Delilo had plenty of readers. He was up on a fairly high pedestal. 
one additional writer not reading this one of his books wasn't going to kill him. He could handle McGee making this judgment about him using incomplete information. And so on. Here is another reason why McGee didn't feel so bad about the possibility of copping out with Tony Vitelli being his only falling person so far. Delilo was known as a great literary writer. This even though he did not appear on Modern Library's list of 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. And if Delilo had copped out, then how big a deal was it that he, McGee, a great writer to be sure, but a science fiction writer still, by and large, to cop out too? Answer, not that big a deal. Even though the idea of literary writers being better than science fiction writers or crime writers for that matter, was complete and utter bunk. Listen, even the great Pinchon, the other half of Delilo's one-two punch of late 20th century great American letters, the mason to Delilo's Dixon, had just come out with his own, quote, September 11th novel, where it reputedly took him more than 300 pages, a 477 whopping coffee table groan-inducing slices of poor dead trees, unless you bought and read it on your Kindle Paperwhite tree-saving device from Amazon.com, just to get to the damn events of the day, much less any potential mention of falling people, which may or may not have ever come. So what was the big deal if it was taking him, Bainbridge McGee, a little while to get there? Answer, not that big a deal. McGee pushed back his chair for the desk to pat himself on the back. He needed this reassurance. He didn't know it, but he had spent the last 17 minutes feeling bad for himself and mentally, quote, ripping himself a new one for not including more falling people in this book of the same name. What he knew was, A, he shouldn't be so hard on himself, and B, he still had plenty of time and pages to include a lot more falling people, even ones who fell from the actual towers. Even the great Vonnegut had taken decades to get himself to write about the Dresden firebombing. McGee was ready to give himself a break. He pushed back in and continued to write the last seconds of Tony Vitelli's life, the things that passed through his brain as time slowed and the sidewalk loomed closer and closer. There was still a lot of life yet to pass backwards in front of Tony Vitelli's eyes. It did, too. Parts of his life passed backwards before Tony Vitelli's eyes. Time had basically stopped on Earth as we know it, with Tony Vitelli perched in the air between the first and second floors of his building. What took only a moment for everybody else took ten or eleven minutes to Tony Vitelli. Here's what he saw. A couple of awesome college parties, one of them leading to an all-night makeout session with a girl he'd been stalking for two weeks, then how he got sick in the middle of it, ran outside and threw up in her bushes, put gum in his mouth, and went right back inside without her even knowing the first time he tried a keg stand. Lots of bong hits. A dinner he had in Atlantic City with his cousin. At his high school prom, getting busted for leaving weed in his limo and not getting laid after. Playing on the high school basketball team and getting benched in his senior year instead of starting. The one year he played football. Driving. Spending a lot of time in his mother's car learning to drive. Losing his virginity not once, but twice. After the first was ruled technically ineligible because of her father coming home at an odd moment of pre to mid coitus which suddenly interrupted the act swimming in a pond the summer after eighth grade with a cute girl nearby and taking his bathing suit off the hot babysitter with the see-through bikini that one time jurassic park the movie 
sitting in between the two, quote, hottest girls to a fourth grader in class during part of fourth grade. His first real fight, his first Happy Meal from McDonald's, and finally looking down to that scary gap in his stairs and dropping action figures with and without parachutes through it, worrying that he was one day going to fall himself. His first picture book, first ice cream, steps, dinosaur toy, teddy bear, onesie, view of the world from a crib, crib, and yes, bottle. Whew! Now he was falling. Time sped right back up for him, and he cracked his head open on the sidewalk. Billy Pilgrim saw this happen in what seemed to him like a very normal-paced couple of seconds, 4.2 to be exact. He heard the awful sound of Vitelli's head cracking. He was surprised and had no idea what had caused Vitelli to leave the firm comfort of the roof. So it goes. A few people who were on the sidewalk below screamed. Men and women. Cars stopped. There was something eerie about the street below, even beyond the fact that there was now a dead person on it. Billy Pilgrim, who had just arrived in this place and this century, could tell that less people were on the street than usual. Already the normal business of this day had changed and been altered. It had basically come to a halt. With good reason. As Billy Pilgrim looked down from the roof at Tony Vitelli's body, one of the other people he stood next to swore. What am I going to do now for this month's rent? he asked. This was Oscar de la Mora one of Tony Vitelli's roommates, and a true bastard if ever there was one. In addition to these qualities, Delamora was also a second cousin twice removed of Paul Lazaro, the car thief and wannabe assassin from Cicero, Illinois. Go figure. Billy Pilgrim looked back at the towers, what was now only one tower. In truth, he was a lot less frantic and disassociated than many of the people around him. This, even given that he had just jumped twenty-something years forward in time, Billy could feel himself getting unstuck again. He blinked and was gone from the year 2001. Where would he land next? A bird perched on a tree branch in Park Slope on September 11, 2001, and asked, Pootie wee Chapter 18 Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko had just had sexual intercourse. It was the 47th time they had done this, but only the ninth time since they had moved in together. They both thought this was one of the best times they had done it. Both of them had climaxed at just about the same time, and then they had fallen towards a peaceful state together in each other's arms, with Emily shaking slightly. Kellogg kissed her temple. I love you, he said. She said she loved him, too. Isn't that sweet? Maybe someday they would make a baby. We'll have to see. When Kellogg rolled off of her, Emily Plinko lit a cigarette. They would both quit smoking soon after the events of this novel when they learned more about Kurt Vonnegut and how he called smoking a, quote, classy way to commit suicide, and then died. But today they shared this cigarette together. It was a Parliament light, not a Paul Mall. Paul Malls were a much faster way to kill yourself than Parliament Lights, they thought. They were right. Kurt Vonnegut's Paul Malls didn't even have filters. This was a Saturday, and the lovebirds, as we'll call them, had woken up late. After their cigarette, they would go out for a brunch and drink a lot of coffee. 
Then Artemis Kellogg would go to a cafe and write. Emily Plinko would take a long bike ride out to the ocean. She loved to be outdoors getting exercise. These were the ways she micromanaged her health and happiness. She believed that exercise and, quote, fresh air were the keys to her healthy eating and to coordinating or moderating the bad chemicals in her brain. She also took a pill once a day to help with her bad chemicals. And another to allow her to have sexual intercourse without worrying about having a baby. So it goes. Later in the day, Kellogg was back at his favorite cafe writing, the one named after the Greek king with the endless task. He had his laptop open, his earbuds plugged into his ears, and had blocked out the world with the music of Schubert's impromptus. He didn't know much about classical music, but he knew these impromptus were pretty good for blocking out the conversations of people around him and the punk metal that the baristas had chosen to play this afternoon. I was at the cafe, too. I was finishing up a beetloaf sandwich. Beetloaf was something that sounded like it would be a big hit with my smartphone and its calories slash carbs slash fat slash protein slash food app, but the app had never heard of beetloaf. My loss. Still, it tasted pretty good, in a non-meat kind of way. It had kind of a barbecue sauce flavor going. I would have to leave the cafe shortly. I had to be home in 15 minutes to relieve my manny and take care of my daughter. A manny is a man who works as a nanny. Who knows if this exists outside of San Francisco? I was happy to see Kellogg show up with his laptop. He hadn't been doing enough writing to my mind. Truth was, he was going to meet one of his top five living authors in less than two weeks. Yes, Bainbridge McGee would meet Artemis Kellogg in San Francisco when he came for the voting of the Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master Award. Here comes a curveball you probably didn't see coming. Artemis Kellogg is one of the other members of the Grand Master Award Committee this year. He was one of the other two who agreed with McGee that Vonnegut should get the award. He despised Aldo Calcagno and his preventative bullshit, too. Artemis Kellogg never recognized me when I saw him at the cafe. I always wore a clever disguise. I couldn't just walk around showing myself off to my creations every day. This would be very disorienting for them. I had learned this from reading Vonnegut. Insert note. See Breakfast of Champions. My most recent disguise was a Fu Manchu mustache I had glued on that morning. I was shooting more for thuggish than hipster, but given the looks of approval I had been getting from hipsters, I had landed on the wrong side of that scale. Accompanying my Fu Manchu, I wore a large pair of mirrored sunglasses, what any faithful Kilgore trout fan would call a pair of leeks. Trout said that mirrors were leeks into another dimension, as you well know. Artemis Kellogg started his typing for this day at about the same time as I walked out onto 20th Street. He had just finished wondering what it meant for Schubert's compositions to be called impromptus. He wanted to know how impromptu they actually were. Did Schubert just dash them off? He wanted to ask someone. I gave Kellogg the answer. They were very much dashed off. Schubert barely thought about them at all. He was actually very lucky they had sold. This may not have been true. But I wanted Kellogg to get down to work. I wanted him to write. Now that he knew the answer to his question, he was ready. And I felt confident leaving, because I knew he would write. Kellogg had finished the story about the water polo player and Kurt Vonnegut. Its ending was a real whiz-bang, you can believe it. He was trying to send it out to contests, which was an utter waste of money. He would be better off sending it to random websites and zines on the internet, 
and so on. The project he was now working on was the screenplay, which was about two things, the Occupy movement and its protest of American corporate greed, and the angry brown people who attacked the United States on September 11th. In Kellogg's screenplay, the angry brown people were dead set on attacking the United States once again. This time they would go after schools. Now they were even angrier because their leader, whose name rhymed with the name of our president by sheer coincidence, had been killed. Now they were really pissed. The Occupy movement was this. Two years before this book was written, in 2011, a group of mostly white people decided to protest the treatment of themselves and their economy, the lack of jobs and distribution of wealth equal to their needs and desires, by purchasing tents and moving into a small, mostly dirt park near Wall Street in New York City. These protesters were against corporations and the white people who ran them for making too much money. They protested the profits and the American way that these people pursued to the exclusion of so much else and so many others' needs. The protesters call these bad people, quote, the 1%. The 1% controlled a lot of the wealth in the USA, a lot. They had the highest 1% of salaries, meaning how much they got paid each year in money and generally had about as much as everybody else in the country combined. Everyone else, the protesters like to say, were part of the, quote, 99%. Many of the white protesters in the 99% were well above the top 20 or 30% in annual income for the country. But they were still part of the 99%, so that wasn't a big part of the talk. What they wanted, and how they proposed to get it, was supposed to be a big part of the talk. But it never turned out to be. Huge protests happened all over the world about this corporate greed and the destructive properties of its competitive nature, all over the United States, people took to the streets to occupy places. They lived outside, mostly in tents. In the end, not much really came of it. The world at large and the corporations treated the Occupy movement like one big letter put into its big suggestion box. Lots of things went into the suggestion box and got ignored. This is what companies did with suggestion boxes, by and large. The general response to the Occupy suggestion was this. Your protest has been noted. Thank you for alerting us to your concern. Thank you for your feedback. And so on. Even the President of the United States spoke up to protest the uneven distribution of wealth in his country. He spoke about it quite elegantly in speeches that may very well be remembered for decades. But nothing much came of that, either. No one who could do anything about it was listening. This may have been because the president was a brown person. Or it could have been because he was asking people to, quote, take the food out of their children's mouths. Or so they said. Their children already had plenty of food. They always would, too. In San Francisco, where Artemis Kellogg lived, people slept in tents on the sidewalk all the time. They weren't protesting anything except for the fact that they had no homes. They were homeless. Actually, their tents right there on the sidewalk were their homes. They were literally occupying Kellogg's Street, the street where he now cohabited with Emily Plinko. They made something of an Occupy Kellogg slash Plinko street movement, but without any real protest. This made most everyone feel bad about things in general when they walked past, and most everyone was definitely in the 99%. So it goes.
Kellogg's idea for a screenplay went like this. He would take the heroes of the 99% and have them defend the country against the angry brown people from the other side of the earth. These angry brown people would be called, quote, terrorists. Unlike Billy Pilgrim, Kellogg was very familiar with this term. His television had been telling him about terrorists for years. He was also very familiar with the concept of the 99% defending the United States from terrorists. They had been doing this for decades in the armed forces. Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force. Everyone already knew this, if they stopped to consider it. But Kellogg's story would be different. He would take a few heroes from the 99%, occupy protesters who had been specifically protesting the ongoing takeover of American shopping establishments by Costco and Walmart, and have them fly around the earth to go toe-to-toe with the terrorists. This one would have action, drama, car chases, and serious fighting, both with guns and without, in caves, mountains, and on highways, too. It was going to be awesome, and certainly the script would sell in Los Angeles for a lot of money. It wouldn't get Artemis Kellogg into the 1%, but still. At the end of the movie, after beating the terrorists toe-to-toe, the protesters would fly back around the earth to speak before Congress about the ills of Costco and Walmart, including all the ways they were putting small, quote, mom-and-pop stores like Kirkland Hardware out of business. This would be their second major victory of the movie. Both of them rolled into the single 97-minute feature, thereby subverting the same old Hollywood formula of a single big standoff at the end, a predictable climax where the big bad guy lost, and adding something new to the genre that would not only make this film stand out as a moneymaker, but also a bit of an, quote, art film to cement Kellogg's place in respectability. Boom! The plan made Kellogg feel like saying. He felt sure that this screenplay could come off in such an awesome way that he could fly to Los Angeles and tell the whole city, in your face, in a very respectable kind of way. Kellogg sat and wrote. He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Then he was done for the day. This was how he had come to work now as a writer. Muse or no muse, he had to sit in a chair and write. Even Hemingway had said so, though he did most of his writing standing up. Kurt Vonnegut probably said so, too. When Kellogg was done writing, he packed up his laptop and finished his drink and ventured out into the out-of-doors, where it was sunny and unseasonably warm for February. Such were the benefits of living in San Francisco. Writing was a great thing for Artemis Kellogg. It made his whole world better, more or less. It made him believe he deserved the good things in his life, including his relationship with Emily Plinko. It even made him less reliant on his pills and their way of fixing his chemicals. It made him less reliant on Harold, too. It did not make him feel better about his job at the Waldorf School, where all the boys kept farting, but it did help him see that he could leave that job one day. And do you know what else? These feelings had nothing to do with Emily Plinko being his muse, They just came from him putting his butt in the chair and typing. Kellogg had begun to think of writing as his religion. So much for Bacchananism. He called the religion, quote, writing. It had many great preachers, many of whom had written books, some who hadn't. You could pick up almost any book and find a new preacher. One of Kellogg's favorite preachers was J.D. Salinger. 
Kellogg liked to read the books of Salinger, especially the one which said, Since it is your religion, do you know what you will be asked when you die? Were most of your stars out? Were you busy writing your heart out? Artemis Kellogg was busy writing his heart out these days, and it felt good, in his heart and elsewhere. We won't say anything about what became of Salinger. I suppose he didn't end up any better or worse than Jesus Christ, did he? Well, except for the sins he perpetrated against unwitting young girls. But you're probably waiting for Kellogg to do something more exciting. Something with his body like carrying out actions, or fighting off intruders, or even having more sex. Come on, Artemis Kellogg would say. I just had sex. Not that he would mind having it again. There, he went home, and he and Emily Plinko had sexual intercourse again. They weren't going to have a baby, but man, were they having fun. After this round of sexual intercourse, Emily Plinko said, Artemis, what do you think is the meaning of life? I think it's protein. Really, I read that in a joke book, but I've been thinking about it, and I think it's really true. Protein powers our muscles. Life is about either that or washboard abs. Washboard abs are very important, she said. They bring happiness. Then she laughed. I'm serious. I wish I wasn't, but that programming has gotten into me. For a moment, Kellogg looked at his feet. They were under a white sheet. He had thrown it over himself when their sexual intercourse was over. Either way, it's one or the other, he said. If all you eat is lean protein, it will give you washboard abs, assuming you're doing any amount of exercise. Emily Plinko grunted. She was doing a sort of tightening exercise with her abs. She did these all the time, without anybody knowing. So, either way, what could be more true in life than protein? Tralfamadorians, Emily Plinko said. They're more real. Artemis Kellogg groaned. He rolled onto his side away from her, and she propped herself up to see his face. I saw the Tralfamadorians, she said. What? He didn't roll back over. Instead, he looked at the stack of books on his night table. Reading books was another important practice in his new religion. On his night table, he had books by Kurt Vonnegut, me, Raymond Carver, Raymond Chandler, and Jim Thompson. Some others, too. Kellogg knew it was important to value his religion and Emily Plinko, so he did his best to get into her conversation about the fictitious Tralfamadorians, whom she now said were real. What do you mean? he asked. They're real, she said. She sat up. I know they're just aliens in the story you told me at the cafe a few months ago, but I've been thinking more and more about it, and I'm starting to believe that they're real. I do like your idea about their thought boxes. Listen, she said, pulling Kellogg's hand so he faced her. I think you're a really good storyteller. I think you can do this and grow out of your work at the Waldorf School. I don't know about money, but I think this is something you should be doing. Artemis Kellogg wondered what chemicals had overtaken her brain. He knew she had taken a good bike ride, and they had sex twice, so he couldn't see how she could have any bad chemicals right at that moment. Did you take your pill? This wasn't the right thing for Kellogg to ask Emily. Listen, she could have gotten very upset with him. A less awesome girlfriend would have. 
Perhaps it was only the few remaining bad chemicals in Kellogg's own brain that caused him to ask. But Emily was game. She was prepared. Yes, she said. Of course, and I exercised too. She knew how his mind worked. He had even told her about Harold. She nodded. I'm serious, and I'm not crazy. You're really good. Even the people at that master award know it. They didn't put you on that committee for nothing, you know. As a matter of odd fact, Kellogg had been given his spot on the Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award Committee as a replacement for his friend Scott Sigler, the venerable and New York Times bestselling sci-fi and horror author who was just too busy writing books about something called intergalactic football to sit on the award committee. Sigler had suggested Kellogg and Calcagno, the committee chairman, didn't want to look around for somebody else, so he emailed Artemis Kellogg, an unknown, and asked if he wanted to join the committee. This fact hurt Emily Plinko's argument more than a little, but Kellogg still listened. She meant well, and she had a good heart, he knew. He reserved the right to believe she knew what she was talking about or was giving him a much-needed pep talk. His good chemicals made his brain say, Listen to her. You've been doing good work. You're a deserving craftsman. This last sentence, You're a deserving craftsman, was another quote from the books of Salinger. Believe me, she said. Artemis Kellogg closed his eyes. Something was happening. It was bigger than him listening to his muse or a beautiful woman who loved him, or knowing he had written that day, or trusting his pills, or listening to his good chemicals quoting from Salinger. It was something that an English major or a Joycean scholar would call, quote, an epiphany. An epiphany was when a character in a book realized something, as if for the first time. Often this realization was something they should have seen all along. When done well, as in the stories of Flannery O'Connor, this epiphany hit the reader and the character at the same time. It was said to hit, quote, like a bucket of water falling onto your head, and such that you realized it never could have happened any other way. This was what happened to Artemis Kellogg. His realization was this, that he was a writer. Religion, practice, all of it. He was worthy. Probably you saw this coming long ago. That, or you don't care. Either way. Across the Mission District, I got a little worried that you might not care. I wondered if this was actually a bad book I was writing. Then I reminded myself of the places in Kurt Vonnegut's books where he told himself he was writing something bad himself and wasn't. Shit. He'd even given Breakfast of Champions a C. Insert note. According to Wikipedia. Can you believe that? I kept on writing. And so on. Artemis Kellogg had his epiphany. He looked at Emily Plinko and saw her face more clearly than he ever had before. He saw new levels of texture on the white walls of their bedroom, rays of the sun streaming in the window onto Emily's beautiful bare chest. It's too bad I can't draw a picture for you due to this electronic format. I would have drawn two beautiful boobs. Tiny motes of dust spun and danced in the sun rays. On the dresser beside their lamp, Kellogg saw a picture of himself when he was young. In the picture, his eight-year-old self had hair covering his ears and a too-tight Izod shirt buttoned all the way up to his neck. Still, his smile was true, his eyes clear. 
Artemis Kellogg looked at his young self and forgave him. He forgave himself now, and then breathed in the biggest breath he had taken all day. Then he let it out. His muscles relaxed. Something deep inside of him released. Okay, he said to Emily Plinko. I hear you. He turned to her and their eyes met. He touched her nose and kissed her briefly on the lips. Thank you, he said. They kissed again, and so on. But they didn't have sex. Come on, twice in a day already was pretty epic. Wow, there you go. 9-11, people falling. The true story about that picture that came out on September 12th, 2001. The disappearance of that picture that came out on September 12th, 2001. If any of you are young enough not to remember that, Google that shit. And this is what we call in the podcast business a long fucking episode, LFE. Are you out there? Are you listening? Have I heard from you? I've heard from Joe Sear, David Dzwierek, Paul Rogalinski, Gomio, and I'd love to hear from you. Drop an email, sethharwood at gmail.com. It's your boy. Let me hear from you. I, uh, I'm in summer here. I'm podcasting. I'm continuing it. And I've been writing a bit. I've been writing some new stuff uh, featuring Billy Pilgrim and Artemis Kellogg and dealing with um, 2014, uh, 2020, and that's right, 1864. You know, the Civil War, baby. Down there in the South. In any case, a lot happening. I hope you're enjoying, and I will be back soon. Thanks for listening to my dad. And thank you for listening. You can support by leaving a five-star review on iTunes, on Amazon.com, or coming over to Patreon.com to support by pledging in any amount. I hope to see you there. I hope to see you soon, and take care of you and yours. All best.